Fishing. Here we're on. Just so you know, Chris, if you're taking off, I'll mention fishing. Yeah. <laughs> They'll know what I'm talking about here in a minute. Uh, you know, today uh, we're uh, working in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, flip open to Philippians chapter 3. And the title of this message is, My Idols Have Become My Altar. Uh, and if you look at your notes, it says altar, A-L-T-E-R, but it's A-L-T-A-R. Um, I just talked on the phone to Chris. I didn't send the word, but it's like, so just so you know, it's like my idols have become my altar. Got what you need? That's what I got. Awesome. And, uh, and so just think about the fact that uh, this really comes from Marsha and her horses. And uh, my wife has wanted horses since she was a little girl. And uh, when I uh, took this, uh, called into this role as a pastor, it's been seven, some, almost seven years ago now, eight if you count our interim year. Uh, she was blessed and someone gave her horses, someone gave her a place to keep it, someone's allowed them to use the trailer, and, and so she has just been blessed. She's been given another horse. She had just this grand adventure because her whole life kind of turned upside down and everything changed for her uh, as our roles changed, and, uh, and so everything just flipped for her, and our kids were leaving, and so she was having empty nester things, and all of a sudden these horses that she'd prayed for since she was a little girl became kind of a really cool sanctuary for her and a great place for her to hide, a great place for her to nurture and to baby the horses. And, uh, and so it was really a fun adventure for her. Well, probably a year and a half ago or so, she broke her back um, on a horse. And, uh, and her horse got sick after that. And so it's just been one thing after the next after the next. And, the, you know, the joy of horses, you still have to take care of them, still have to feed them. And they still cost you even though you don't get the, the pleasure of them during those seasons. And so a few weeks ago, it's probably been a while, she uh, was so discouraged about uh, the horses and what they had done and how she just couldn't seem to get back to her adventure with those. And one day she was sitting in the barn um, with her horses and she was just crying out to God and just praying. And Karen called her and she said to Karen, my idols have become my altar. And uh, that just, just stuck with me. And I haven't been able to get that thought out of my head. My idols have become my altar. And so uh, the, the, the idea of an idol is anything that's more significant than the one true God. If I can just have that, I'm going to be okay. If I just lose that, I'm not going to be okay. It gives me significance. It gives me value. It gives me power. It gives me meaning to my life. And idols are, are a matter of the heart, okay? What do I really, really love? Do you want to know a person? We often ask, what do you do? Instead, try asking, what do you love? And now realize these can be really good things. These are gifts from God. And so we live out of the love of our hearts. And, and we just kind of need to identify those idols in our hearts because these are generally good things. So this is, this is a, the, an adventure for us because these are good things. can even be another person. can be money, can be power, can be stuff. There's no harm, for example, in money. F.B. Meyer says it's so hard to own it without it looking, without you looking upon it as it's your own instead of just realizing we're only stewards of the resources we have. You see, the idols in our lives, the good things in our lives, become idols when they become the ultimate thing in our lives. And then they rob us of the best. When the one true God is on the throne, all these other things fall into place and we get to experience life. We're free. 
Now the altar is the place of sacrifice. It's a place of surrender. It's a place of an offering. An altar is a place of the exchange. And this Hebrew word actually uh, comes from the word we use, slaughter. It's kind of a harsh picture. But the altar is the place where we can surrender, where we sacrifice our idols we're holding on to, and we get the gift of Almighty God. We exchange our stuff for Him. We exchange our struggles for Him, and that allows us the freedom to walk with Him and to worship Him. Now, we're no longer controlled by stuff or by money or by another person. We're surrendered to God, not committed, surrendered. And that's where we find freedom. Now, the deception comes, and the thought goes, if I really love something good, it would be better if I just had more. Not less, more. And I don't want to give up what I got. Okay. So the very first question, the first point that I really want you to ask is, what do I love? What do I love? St. Augustine argued that that question, what do you love, is the most important of all questions. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 3, in verse 5, we get a sense of what Paul loved. Philippians 3, 5 says, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness which is in the law, he was found blameless. Father, we just come to you this morning. God, I just pray that you would take away the distractions from me and from each one of us and that you would just speak by the power of your spirit. You would speak right to each one of us right where we are and you would just get the glory. I pray that you just get me out of the way, God. You know where we come from. You know what holds our hearts. And I pray that we would just be set free to have you hold our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at this life of Paul. And, uh, and he kind of, we settled into this letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi. And Saul, uh, who we know as Paul, had really determined that he was going to make his life significant by his religion. And Saul had risen to the top of the Jewish religious circles. He had risen to the top, right? He came from a prominent family. He was exposed to this rich religious intellectual heritage. He, he mastered Jewish history. He mastered really the whole poetry of the Psalms. He mastered the literature of the prophets by the time he was about 13. And then he went into higher education, and he went to study under Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hael, who was the supreme teacher of the day. And Paul learned to defend the scriptures. He learned from generations of rabbis. He learned how to pursue and master his religion. And he decided that his religion could make his life significant. And he loved it. He loved it. He loved knowing the scriptures. He loved having knowledge. He loved being an expert. He loved having significance from really correcting the world, really, of all the infidels who are wrong, from purifying the world from all that's evil, violates God's holy word. He loved it. Saul's idol, in my opinion, was his religion. Now, I know most of us are not worshiping circumcision, okay? It's really not a big struggle for us. Maybe for some, but not for most of us. Not worshiping the religion. We don't put that really high on our idol list. But we often do struggle to try and please God. 
as Christians, we're thankful for his grace. And the next thing we know, we find ourselves trying to pay God back for our performance. And the struggle is to try and please him rather than just to surrender to him. So Paul comes, he meets Jesus Christ. He really got to know Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And, you know, Saul had known about Christ and he was rounding up those who were following Christ. But he came face to face with the risen Lord and eternity was altered from that moment on. Paul discovered life. He discovered true life and true freedom and true significance. And your thing might not be religion. It might not be horses. But what do you love? You see, for me, it wasn't religion at all. It wasn't horses. As a matter of fact, I'm allergic to horses, so it's never been a big draw for me. Um, just kind of make me sick when I'm around them, literally. And uh, yet for me, what was interesting was one of my idols was, and I, you know, you just keep finding more and more, but one was financial security. And it's kind of funny because I wanted to be financially independent from, as a young man. And I'm not really into stuff, but I just wanted to know that I'd be able to take care of my family financially. Okay, I kind of like that feeling, even though it's just an illusion that, that I'm secure. And I know what it takes from a world's perspective. As a young man, I learned the value of compound interest. I started putting that into practice. And, and God loves me so much that he just kept intervening and thwarting my plan. And uh, I got to learn that God is the provider. I know that's true. I just wanted a backup. You know, I just didn't want to put it all on him. I should be able to take care of myself first, right? And if I fail, I get it, God, I'll count on you if, it res if I have to resort to that. And so when all my resources were tapped, then I'd go to God. But God kept putting me in position so I could decide if I was going to hold on to my resources or if I was going to trust him. It's been a long struggle to surrender and to give it all up, to trust him. And it's like this continual process to remember that truth, that he took care of me when I was 20 and when I was 30 when I was 40. And he'll take care of me when I'm 70 if he tarries or if I'm still here, right? And even more now that I've given up those resources. And I can't see the plan like I could see before. I had it all mapped out before. Now I can just trust God. And God has stripped that idol from my heart. And that altar uh, is where I constantly am reminded to surrender to him, to trust him, to rely on him, that he's my provider, he's my security. My plan didn't work, his will. And there's incredible freedom in that. And it's amazing to see how he works, that he'll take care of us. So God puts me in a place where I can't pull it off. And I must allow that altar or that idol to become the altar where I know it sounds so simple, but I turn to Christ. So what do you love? Is it stuff? Is it power? Maybe it's a title? Reputation? Could be money? Could be your body, how you look? Could be a relationship with another person? Maybe it's just fun. Maybe it's just leisure. Has that love become more important than the one true God in your life? Are you okay without it? How about asking God to set you free? See, that's what Paul learned. Ask, what do you love? And then the second thing is ask, what must I lose? What must I lose? 
In verse 7, Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now the challenge is not to quit the things you love, but just not to be controlled by them. So I'm not here to try and convince you that the good things of these world are bad for you. They're not. They're gifts from God. They're just not ultimate things. And it's pretty obvious when we consider ourselves, right? I look at myself and I realize I'm not the ultimate thing for Marcia. I'm not the ultimate thing for my kids. Obviously not the ultimate thing for any of you. It's pretty obvious, right? So what are we doing putting another person or some other stuff in the place of the ultimate? What is the most significant thing in your life? We just have to follow each other around for a week and we'd know. See, the idea is to recognize that your heart can only have one ultimate. And your heart is designed by God to have him as the ultimate love. And as we turn our idols to Jesus, they become the altars where we're set free. Often we get to keep them. Often we get to thoroughly enjoy them. Often we get them in greater abundance when we're free from them. They don't control us. As we lay it on the altar... It's amazing how he pours out more and more. Maybe your idol's money and he maybe you lay it on the altar and he gives you more. And you get more to give away or more to enjoy or you have deeper relationships or you have more fun, more stuff, okay? Ask yourself, what is it that competes with Jesus in your life? What draws me away from Christ? They're most often good things. But they become ultimate things. Whatever to gain to me, Paul says, I count as loss. All things compared to Christ become lost to Paul. Now, the word for count is in the present tense. So it means that Paul is continually, he's habitually reflecting on this truth. And the word for loss there is, is from having something to giving it up. It's to forfeit. It's to, to go from advantage to disadvantage. So all things become lost compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ. And I once thought these things were most valuable, he said. But now compared to knowing Christ, they're insignificant. Okay. Now Paul's gotten to the place in his relationship with God where all of his accomplishments, all the things he'd learned, all the things he had worked so hard to accumulate became like rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Rubbish. It's a harsh word. It means garbage. It means scraps from a table thrown to animals. It means uh, a half-eaten corpse, dung, manure, human or animal excrement. It's a pile of maneuver. Really, to be so crass, it's a pile of crap. That's what it is. So catch this. Catch this. This is like so freeing and so often how we get bound up in Christianity. These are not bad things. These are the things you love. These are good things and they will become like a pile of manure compared to knowing Christ. And I'm not saying they get worse. 
I'm saying he is infinitely better. Isn't that cool? Your favorite things on earth that you absolutely love, you're not going to quit loving them, but they're nothing compared to experiencing Christ. Nothing. They're insignificant. Isn't that cool? Can't we, wouldn't it be cool if we can just live there? I mean, the thing, just think about the things we don't like, how they look like. I mean, these are the things we love. Compared to knowing Christ, they're nothing. It's amazing. And Paul's saying, look, I think about this stuff. It's good stuff, but it's not constantly on my mind. I'm not going to spend my life, my limited time on earth, dreaming about manure, okay? Uh, as a matter of fact, the septic guys were out the other day, and Marsha, being Marsha, when they opened it, said, wow, that stinks. And uh, bold. And they said, uh, it's the smell of money. <laughs> and it is. It's the smell of money. And, and just think, though. Money smells sweet. And I was thinking about this message, and you know what? That really is the smell of money compared to Christ. It's like a septic tank. Are you there? Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a way to live at such a higher level that all the stuff we love, all the good stuff is nothing compared to where we can be, knowing Christ? Pursue knowing Christ. And I'm not saying these things will become bad. I'm just saying there's one who's infinitely greater than any of the coolest things you can imagine on earth. We have to experience God, not through another person, not through how we think God should be, not through what we think God shouldn't do or should do, not because a loving God wouldn't do that, but we experience God as his word reveals him. And then he makes everything else become like garbage because he is so awesome. The best we know in this life becomes insignificant compared to the ultimate one. Compared to the ultimate one. Pursue knowing him. Finally, what will we gain? Paul goes on in, in chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, I want to be found in Christ. I want to have a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What will we gain? You'll gain this. Everything life on earth was designed to be for you. You think about what you love, you, you get to know Christ, and you gain everything life on earth is designed to be for you. Everything. You get to experience the ultimate of life. And Paul writes in the book of Romans that creation groans, creation longs for God, longs for that. And we ache for the way things are designed to be. We struggle with shame and with rejection and with failure with insecurity and fear. We struggle to make sense of injustice, pain, sin. There's got to be something more. There's got to be a better way. That's why we pursue this stuff we love. Hey, we're looking for more. We're looking for something better. There has to be something better. There has to be something sweeter. But could there really be something better and sweeter than money? than sex and marriage, than experiencing nature and the beauty of God's creation, than having a great marriage. Could there be something sweeter than that? Than having great kids, than playing scratch golf, 
I was riding my Harley up today thinking this is so awesome. Could there really be something better? Something better than, than boating? Something better than, than traveling around the world? Something better than horses? Something better for Chris than fishing? Could there really be something better? Yes. Yes. These are all good things and they become like garbage when we experience Christ. And I'm not trying to convince you they're bad. They're some of the best things in life. But there's someone who is so much more that if we're willing to trust him, we get to experience this infinite joy. It's amazing. It's not about holding on tightly to what we have and then trying to add God. See, the great I am is not an ad. He's ultimate. Verse 9, Paul really gives us salvation in one verse. Not just conversion, but the much more of the gospel, the exchange life. We're groaning, we're aching to be right with the one true God. And you might not think you are, but you are. We are. That's the way we are designed by the Creator. And you're either completely righteous by God's definition or you are not righteous at all. God doesn't grade on a curve. Most of us do. We put goodness on a scale. We got the murderers. We got the violent criminals. Then we got the normal working people. Right? The average people. Then we got Mother Teresa and Billy Graham over here. Okay? And we're okay because we're somewhere in the middle. Or we got the criminals and, and we got the, the normal, everyday people. And then we got the missionaries. Right? That's not God's standard. He gave us his standard. Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard. You have to be as perfect as God. Period. Paul had accumulated a lot of righteousness. Whew. From a human's perspective, man, he inherited being Jewish. He was in this incredible family, the strict parents. He was circumcised. He was a tribe of the Benjamin, a cool tribe. He, he worked so hard at being a Pharisee. He was like in this ultimate sect. He was zealous. And catch this, he didn't exchange his accomplishments. He didn't trade them in on Christianity. He didn't just trade one religion for another. No. He didn't just take his performance and then start working for Christ. Instead of the Jewish religion, instead of what he was pursuing, no. Paul surrendered it all. Rubbish for righteousness. The exchange life. His performance, his righteousness for Christ. And he lost all the gain, everything. It wasn't that Paul found something that was just better than what he had. He had something that was false, and he found the truth. And he moved from counting on himself to be right with God to counting on Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, Paul stands before God in Christ, and he's judged by God as God judges Christ. That's his offer to you. You want to be judged based on your righteousness or based on Christ? It's an amazing, amazing thing. Did Paul still love the Word of God? Absolutely. He loved the Scriptures. Only now, God was able to use him to write most of the New Testament, <laughs> but much more. 
God steps into our story. He reveals himself by his grace. Every single one of us right where we are. And he's offering to give us what we don't deserve, what we can't do, what we can't earn. As Bono says in his song about grace, he says he takes the blame, he covers the shame, he removes the stain. Grace is a thought that changed the world. And because of his grace, God finds goodness in you. He finds beauty in you. He makes beauty out of ugly things. Steve Garber writes this. He says, so often we try and explain the universe through dead man's eyes. That's another phrase that has stuck with me and I can't get out of my head. We try and explain the universe through dead man's eyes. We worship and we hold on to things that we see as valuable that we see through dead man's eyes. And all of a sudden when we experience God, all of a sudden we experience his grace, all of a sudden we can see through the eyes of life and we really see true beauty, that's when we get to experience all that we're created to see. That's when we get to experience the really good things. And the things that we saw through dead men's eyes are like rubbish compared to Christ. I'm telling you, they're good things, but we can experience so much more, so much more. So we've considered what do I love? We've considered what must I lose? We've considered what do I gain? So now, knowing what we know, how shall we then live? Paul tells us in verse 10, he says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He gives us the answer to experience the maximum amount of life on this earth, and it's to pursue knowing Christ, experiencing Christ. That word in the Greek is, is, is like not just about to know intellectually, but it's to experience, okay? Saul knew who Jesus was. He was persecuting the Christians. He knew what he believed. He knew what he taught. He was rounding them up and throwing them in jail. But on the road to Damascus, he experienced Jesus Christ. He got to know Jesus. This means to commune with God. The Hebrews had a word called yada that captures the concept. Yada. It's used close to a thousand times in the Hebrew scriptures. And that word means to choose. It means to be concerned about, to care, to acknowledge, to teach, to learn, even to have sex with, to make love to, yada. And Seinfeld on his show several years ago made that word famous, yada, 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 right? And basically what he's saying is there's no point. We can know all this world has to offer and the world is so broken, all knowledge becomes yada, yada, yada. You know, I was just looking at the headlines yesterday, and I'll tell you what I learned in just a few minutes. Just a few minutes. I learned about Benghazi and the terrorist attacks. I learned about stars who had plastic surgery. I learned about who died. I learned about a new civic center, thanks Donovan. I learned about dogs and how they interact with babies. I learned who roomed with who before they were stars. I learned about who's addicted to gambling and how you become addicted to gambling. I learned a lot of lies we learned about George Washington. I learned about the fourth fireworks, the USA World Cup, eight things we should spend our money on, the NBA draft, who won, who lost, the Cincinnati Reds and how their score was. I learned about the United States National Parks, about Ford, about Tiger Woods, about expensive weddings, about lawn care, about the Dow, about the weather, and why I'll never retire. Just in a few minutes. <laughs> I caught it all. Yada, yada, yada. Right? That's our world. 
that's our world. You can catch that on the way to the parking lot and get all that information. And, and it's so overwhelming, we just kind of stay in the shallows and we just try and sort out what makes sense to us and pursue things we love because this is so daunting. And yet through all this, God is whispering to every single one of us, each of us, he's whispering and saying, it's about knowing me. It's about knowing me. It's about experiencing me. And as we experience God, guess what? All these things fall into place. It's not about realizing myself, self-realization, but about knowing Christ. And all these circumstances in every single one of our lives are designed to point us to him. So we take these idols that are good, we turn them into altars, we surrender our lives to Christ, and we don't ever have to hide. We can overcome our shame. We can overcome our fear. We can overcome all the uncertainty in this world. We can, we can rest on the rock. We can overcome the anxiety that comes from all the knowledge we have. And we can know the one who absolutely knows the worst about us loves us. He knows the worst about you and loves you. In verse 11, Paul actually uses a different word for resurrection than he uses in verse 10, and I think it kind of captures this whole concept of what happens when our idols become our altars. In verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And, uh, and, and that word there is, is rising from the dead, the physical rising. It's like we want to experience Christ. We want to experience his power as he literally rose from the dead. We want to understand how he suffered. Willing to go to the point of physical death so he could die and pay for our sins and physically rise from the dead. But then in verse 11, he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is not a physical resurrection. That's the one that's promised to all believers. Paul's not doubting that he's going to experience heaven and all the things we've been talking about the last several weeks. He's not doubting that at all. He is talking about a present life identification with Christ in his resurrection. You see, Christ is alive. Right now, right here, as we roll into July 2014, Jesus Christ is alive. And Paul says, I want to experience him. And we can experience him because he lives within us. You see, in the Greek mind, the living people were standing up and the dead people were lying down. And so he's saying, this is like a resurrection among the corpses. This is like we can see with eyes of life amongst all those people who see through a dead man's eyes. We have these opportunities as believers. We can know the God of the universe. We can experience him every moment of every day. And we can give the spiritually dead a preview of his eternal life and his power as we stand among those who are dying. We are living in the land of the dying. They see through dead men's eyes. But they can see the living Christ through us, through his church. Our lives are so different from those around us. Guess what? We go through the same things they go through. The pain, the struggles. We sin. We screw up. We have all kinds of problems. We see injustice. And yet we have this hope. We have this joy. We have this peace that's indescribable. Augustine said that Adam and Eve were able to sin, able not to sin. The lost are not able not to sin. Remember that. Not able not to sin. When you go to work, 
when you go into the city, when you leave this place and you're surrounded by those who don't know Christ, not able not to sin. That's their state. All they can do is see through dead man's eyes. But believers, Christians, are able not to sin as we abide in Christ, as we surrender to him, as we walk in the spirit. We're able not to sin. And one day in heaven, we will not be able to sin. Do you see? We're living in the already but not yet. And with this knowledge kind of comes an opportunity to surrender to him and a responsibility to rest in him. And if we really know him, if we really, really know him, we will live for him. Because all these other choices become like rubbish. And as we live for him, we can truly love the things of this world and the people of this world. Without God, everything becomes yada, yada, yada. We lose the purpose of our beings. We lose ourselves. And when we know him, we find everything else. So as we rest this message, Olivia is going to come up and sing us a song. Ask, what do I love? Has it become an idol? Has it become ultimate? Ask, what must I lose? What must I put on the altar to sacrifice to God and realize what you will gain? everything your heart desires. So knowing what I know, how shall I live? Surrender to God, experiencing Him. Father, I just thank you for this chance to get to know you. This limited day, in this limited time on earth, we have an opportunity to experience you. We can know you. We can walk with you. We can see through your eyes. We can surrender to you. And I pray, God, that that would be us. We would be a people surrendered to you. And we would allow these idols that have become ultimate to us to be the altars that we lay down as a sacrifice to you. Use this for your glory.